0: The Brooklyn NAACP Equity in the Arts and Culture Committee proudly present, Conversations. And now here's your host, Rajendra Ramun Maharaj.
1: Hello everybody, this is Rajendra Ramun Maharaj coming to you with a very special show today with a very special lady who I am so honored to introduce to you. Her name is Catherine Elliott and she is the director of the New Orleans Writers Residency. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, I'm happy to be here.
1: So, Katherine, I wanted to ask you, what was the brain trust, what was the idea of bringing writers to New Orleans? What did that generate from?
2: Well, that's a pretty complicated question, although it shouldn't be. Um, (laughs) There were a lot of moving parts to it, so, in one sense, I've always loved the idea of community. I've always been a traveler and have met people all over the world and stayed in a lot of artist communes and, you know, and things like that. And my dad always said to me, you know, just make sure that in your life you're trying to give back just a little more than you're taking. Mm. And people have always been so generous to me wherever I've gone. I'm probably one of the most lucky person people that you'll ever meet. So that was always in my mind of like, what can I do mm-hmm. in my little weird, rebellious, non-joining kind of way? I also just love the city of New Orleans. I love the energy of New Orleans, and always said if I ever lived in the United States, I would be in New Orleans. In, in New Orleans. So I guess this was a way for me to figure out the trick of how to give without making people feel weird about it.
1: And one of the things that I love about you and respect deeply is that you have such a love of words and language and writers. Was that always something that was in you as a little girl or did that develop in time? Where did that passion come for writers?
2: When I was very young. My my mom was a childhood development specialist and so she required that my dad and she would read to us every night before bed from the time I was born. And He said, but I hate children's books. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, I don't care what you read them, but you have to read them. Mm -hmm. So she would read us children's books and classics. Actually, she read, I think she read us the Comedy of Urge when I was like five or six years old. And my dad would read us sci fi and fantasy. And he was very cantankerous, so he would do awful things to us. He like he read us the foundation trilogy oh. which we loved when I was, you know, probably about the same age, probably 5 or 6 years old, not quite old enough to read, right? Mm-hmm. And then at like 50 pages before the end, he just quit. He mm-hmm. said, "I don't like the end of this book. It's not a good ending." I'm done. Wow. And so I really had to learn to read. <laughs> <laughs> in order to find out what happens in all of these stories, you know, because he wouldn't read all of it. He would just do the sections he liked. So I, I think I always loved books, but I also always had the sense of books as teachers and art as, as a teacher. I think we have so many things going on in the world and it's, and it all feels so big. There's civil rights stuff, there's the environment, there's just basic lack of compassion. You know, yeah. there, there are all of these things that we have to contend with. And for me, one of the most powerful things that has influenced me in my life is just to be able to step inside of someone else's mind Mm. or someone else's solution. Mm. And I feel like in order to be larger than yourself,
1: Mm.
2: you have to have that freedom. And there has to be a million different stories that we can step into. Mm.
1: And as a little girl, what were some of the favorite stories that you had as people are listening today, what were some of the, the stories that shaped you?
2: I loved the never ending story a lot.
1: How did it. you connect with that?
2: It was just the actually interestingly the never ending story has a lot of underlying symbolism. It's very much a fairy tale mm-hmm. in that way. So it's teaching these these lessons of life and you know there are a lot of things that you don't even think about as a child. Like what does it mean that the more that you are in this fantasy world, the more you forget of your real life. What does it, you know, like so many little things, Mm. but you don't notice them, but they do create layers and they do sort of help you to look at like how to appreciate where you're at. The really the love of of his father is what brings him back to the world. So there's, you know, there are all of these, like fantasy is great and stories are important. And if we don't believe in our stories, they disappear. So, it, the nothing eats the world of yeah. the never ending story unless a child believes, unless a child is engaged. Yeah. So, it really is kind of a pretty layered book, I think.
1: And it resonates with me. And
2: you. it resonates with me just on the pure basis of like what stories mean to me and also like how to connect those stories to reality that you can't forget that you could get lost mm-hmm. in fantasy too. So, you, there's a balance. So, I loved that one. Of course, Tolkien, Octavia Butler was a favorite. So, my dad was really influential in terms of like my earliest books were definitely like fantasy sci fi (laughs) books that I read because the covers were so cool. Yeah. You know, like I couldn't read, but I could look at the pictures on the covers and it would be like dragons and kings and, you know, yeah. So, I was like, I want to read that. Like, there's a spaceship on the cover of that one.
1: One of the gifts of being here in New Orleans and being part of the residency is this extensive library that you've created. Could you share with us what your vision was of that and why is that such an important element? I've been on other residencies and that isn't always part of the factor. And it's such an important part, at least for me in my work. Where did that come from and where did those books come from? Sure.
2: Well, I guess to begin with, I left home when I was 14. So I thought, you know, I had lived a great many years Mm. on my own at the point that I hit 17. And I thought, you know, it's time to stop messing around I got an adulting. I got an adult. I got to grow up. Seventeen. I got, I got to get a career. So my first stab at that was rare books. So I went into rare books, and I I went to the Rare Book School at University of Virginia, and it always had to be something associated with arts. But I had been convinced that like being in the arts was unrealistic. So art adjacent, right? right. And I just I love the way that old objects kind of pick up the energy of their time Mm -hmm. the way that you can break it down and understand like not only what it is that you're reading but also like how it was made and how that affected the writing and Mm -hmm. how that kind of translates to us through time and so I, i loved all of that so i wanted to have like some kind of rare book component in the library because i think that books as a physical object are something that are sometimes underappreciated, but very beautiful, and I guess I'm a romantic. So I have that element in the library. And then I also look at this as like a lineage
0: mm-hmm. and
2: an organic growing process. And we are growing so much in the arena of art and literature right now sure. in the world. So there's this very limited voice that you have in our history, and it doesn't make it less beautiful, but it does make it incomplete. Mm. And Right now, we are moving to resolve that or fix that in small and big ways, and one of the most important things that you can do is just broaden the amount of information and the amount of, or the kind of uh, voices that are represented. So our residency is a part of this infinite lineage of human knowledge, and every person that comes to the residency I invite them to bring books that influence them I invite them to bring books that they've written or plays or yes, you know yes. or any any kind of written art form right and I consider those works to be just as important as like Dickens or mm-hmm. Shakespeare you know these are the, the great new voices of our time
1: that's amazing and you mentioned before about New Orleans, what makes New Orleans so unique to you? And to those who've never been to New Orleans, what, what, there's something I always say magical that I've experienced in the last month. But for you, as a person who's been here, who's developed, have roots, what makes New Orleans so unique compared to other cities, uh, particularly in the South?
2: I consider New Orleans to be the most magical city in the United States. And I don't say that lightly. I, I think that cities have personalities just like people do. Mm. And there are cities that are kind of just trying to fit in like people (laughs) look like everybody else and act like everybody else and be palatable to the most number of people. And you can't really figure out what, why should I care about this city? Right. Mm -hmm. New Orleans is not for everyone. New Orleans is not a city that equally appeals to all people that live here. It's kind of the, it's kind of the light and dark of everything. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And you know, there is, there is no apology in New Orleans. New Orleans is, is probably the only city in the United States that is foundationally like the culture of New Orleans is black culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not an adjunct, it's not an add-on, it's not like underneath right. or working in like opposition to or it, there's there's none of that. It's just this is the culture of New Orleans and if you are to respect New Orleans you have to respect that culture and you have to conform and if you come to New Orleans and try to make it the thing that makes you feel comfortable hmm. then you're doing it wrong
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
2: you walk out the door and if you're in a good mood the chances are that uh, you know you'll be invited to do all of this wonderful stuff there's a term called Lanyap in New Orleans which is it means something extra okay <laughs> and so you could call like a tip Lanyap, but that's not really what it, what it is originally about it's more like you go to a place and they give you something for free mm-hmm. you know they give you something just because just just for hospitality mm-hmm. and that's lanyap yeah. so you walk out on the street and people are just like oh you look thirsty let me give you a drink you know like yeah. like yeah uh, this this kind of stuff and there's there's a kind of fundamental generosity in that so I love that But there's just also the colors the music the,
0: the food the
2: food <laughs> It's it is such a unique place and it's, it wouldn't be possible for me to tell you why or How yeah. you know in all of the ways that you could probably talk for you know, six months about that about the subject of New Orleans and all of the small things that make it what it is.
1: You just gotta come and experience it.
2: It is the only city in the United States that I would wanna have this residency in.
1: Both as a friend and a colleague, I, I learned so much from these last four weeks. And one of the things that struck me was, even when I walked in the first day, you showed me a book and the side of the book have a story to four tell. Edge, yeah. Could you could you for our listeners, could you explain what that was? I, I had never known <laughs> that and I just thought it was so interesting and so kind of dope.
2: <laughs> yeah. So during the seventeenth century and the nineteenth century there's a very popular form of art called four edge painting. So you would have <clears throat> these artists would kind of bend the spine of the book just a little bit so that the pages fan out and they would very carefully do a hand painted picture underneath the gilt on the edge of the the books that they would be then putting in their libraries. And this was something that like a lot of wealthy houses would hire their favorite painter or whatever Mm. to, to do these paintings. So often they are cityscapes. They are like, say there's a book of Shakespeare, this is one in our library, there's a book of Shakespeare that has like Stratford upon Avon as the, you know, the hidden painting. But it was also very, very popular for gentlemen to have pornography painted into their books. It was was the earliest form of kind of like the hidden porn. Yeah, yeah. Because their wives and stuff (laughs) wouldn't want them to have that. So that's kind of why it was called a gentleman's library. Oh, wow,
1: I didn't know that.
2: Because these were, you know, like they were just for the gentlemen.
0: Right, 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 right.
2: <laughs> they were the masculine books. Yes. But yeah, you'd have these. It's, it, some of them were very cartoonish and some of them were very, very beautiful. And now they're highly sought after, actually, as, as works of art. So if you ever, like, see an old book and you kind of, like, you, you might want to bend it and see if there's a painting in there. And if there is, it's a valuable
0: book, actually.
1: Wow, that's amazing. And I, Literally, I just walked in and as we were doing the tour, it, it just shook me because I was like, wow, that's such an interesting way of communicating and how people were able to communicate. As you look at the world today, what do you think are some of the things we need to improve on in terms of communicating, in your mm-hmm. opinion? You mentioned it a little earlier, but you know, so many activists and artists and advocates are listening right now and you have this platform. What do you think are some of the things that we need to do in terms of listening better? You listen with your ears but also with your heart. Yeah, I'm curious if you could share that knowledge with some of our listeners.
2: Well, I don't know if there's a lot new to say on this subject. It's sort of like we give ourselves a lot of excuses to shut down our compassion. Mm-hmm. And I've done that, and I think most of us have done that. Mm-hmm. We don't like the thing that the person has said. We don't like their beliefs set. We don't like shit that they actually do, right? Like they do terrible things Mm -hmm. and so we allow this as an excuse to stop listening and stop learning and kind of we give ourselves permission to say there are certain people that are not entirely human
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and I understand why that happens but I will never be comfortable with it Mm -hmm. and that is not to say that I don't have strongly held opinions or that I won't say what I think in any given situation, but it is to say, at least for myself, I really, really value the conversation and that there is always a conversation to be had. Mm -hmm. And when we decide that people cannot learn or that conversation is not valuable or that communication is something that is reserved for people that we respect and their ideas and so on, I think we lose something fundamental. Mm. And I think that that's, you know, that's actually the cheat of literature and playwriting and so on is that somehow if you don't have the energy mm-hmm. to engage, because sometimes you're too damaged, it's too hard and you have to hear things that are painful
1: right. and traumatic
2: and traumatic. And, you know, and I've been there too, where like, there are moments when I'm like, look, <laughs> <laughs> like these experiences, when you talk about them, I'm feeling like I'm I'm in trauma. Like I have had a house fall on me and I don't, I would love to be able to tell you why you're wrong calmly right now, but right now I'm just reliving this moment, right? So, but that doesn't mean that I don't think the conversation is important. If I had the energy, I would have the conversation. Mm-hmm. I just don't fault people for not being able to have it. But I think that sometimes what artists are doing is creating a forum where they can have the conversation without having to deal with that person in front of them.
1: Mm. Can you elaborate on that a little more?
2: In, I mean, this is this is maybe only me, but, there, but I spend a lot of time, if I am writing something about myself, I also try to think about, are there ways in which I can communicate this to someone who doesn't already understand? Because I think that that is what art can do, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's transformative because you are able to take these beautiful words and this beautiful paint and this beautiful sound and somehow convey a fundamental human reality that the other person doesn't already understand.
1: Mm, Well put. Um, So in your mind as an artist and as an activist and a citizen of the world, is art even more necessary today?
2: I think so. I mean, I I think as I told you at some point, I have difficulty with the idea of extending anything that I think outside of my own skin. <laughs> I, have very, I have strongly held beliefs for how I should behave in the world and what I think is true, but I don't think I can extend that to others and say this is what they should do, you know? But for me, I choose to believe as a romantic that there is po- the possibility of learning to communicate. There is the possibility of learning the perspective of the other in a way that's meaningful and creates better conversations Mm -hmm. between all of us, right? And yeah, of course, this is a scary political climate. This is a scary place for us to be in. It's a very divisive place in our history. You know, there's a lot, there's kind of raising tensions. Even people who are quite old that I talk to who have been through other eras that were really scary are like, yeah, this is what it felt like at this really intense place in history. I once talked to, this was, this was a couple of years back, I talked to a Jewish-Hungarian woman whose grandparents had survived Auschwitz. Mm. And her grandparents were terrified because they said that the political climate in just the last couple of years felt like right before the war. So it's not just the United States. Right. It's like there's these rising tensions and divisiveness and conflicts everywhere right now. And in, historically, that hasn't ended well. Right. And usually in, in uh, oppressive regimes, the first thing that happens is censorship, actually. The first thing that happens is that they start saying what is OK to present. Do, to present and what is not. So whenever there is any kind of form of censorship, you should be afraid. Mm-hmm. It's not because they're censoring something you agree with. It's because they're censoring at all and so right now in this administration you just see that you do see like attempts to discredit suppress. Or, or suppress certain voices and and I don't think that for me their response is like well we should do it back we should use their tactics against them I think my response was to say I don't know what to do about this maybe nobody knows what to do about this this is a very scary time I guess I'll start a residency. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you did. And you did.
2: I, I guess, I, I think there are a lot of people who probably have wiser things to say than I do.
1: <laughs> no, no.
2: No, because so I... So I'm going to support those people, you know? No, but
1: I, I, I mean, you're very humble. And I do think that you have a lot of wisdom. I've always said this, you have an old soul. Yeah, oh, thank you. And the wisdom and a grace that I think lacks in a lot of people that I've encountered in my life and in honesty. And it's not blowing smoke up your butt, I really genuinely feel that. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show and to share some of that knowledge and wisdom and grace with our listeners. Something you once said to me and I think to my other colleagues here, which surprised me was that there's such a, and I wasn't aware of it to the degree, but women writers have it harder than male writers even today in 2020.
2: Can you contextualize
0: that
1: for me? Well, we were talking at one of the dinners, and you were saying that throughout history, women have always had it harder than their male counterparts, and mm-hmm. even today, that continues in certain circles for women of color. Or, oh, of course, it,
0: yeah.
1: And and can you talk a little bit about that? Why you think that still exists? Because we do think at least in certain circles that we we've, we've come so far with sure. women's rights, and you know, Hillary Rodham Clinton running for president, and but there are still other businesses and ways of creating art that hasn't really caught up to the equal.
2: I think it is slowly changing. You do see at least the effort on people's part, which I really appreciate. I think that's all we can do. You know, like to make changes, to make the best our best effort. And then maybe next week our best effort will be better mm. than last week's best effort, right? It's like building a tolerance. Yeah. <laughs> to goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in the literary world, and this is just true, From the time that the first women broke in, you know, Jane Austen was really the first English novelist. And you could say the first novel was Don Quixote, Mm -hmm. but the first real English novel was Jane Austen. So it was a woman. But even at that time, because the first novels were written by women, the novel was considered an inferior art form. Really? Yes. Anything that wasn't written in verse, in iambic, and it was you know, like uh, prose, Mm -hmm. like fiction, fictional prose, specifically. It's like it's an inferior art form. It doesn't take as much skill or talent. It's a women's thing. You know, it's basically like the way that we kind of treat uh, romance novels. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You know, that was all novels initially. And then, you know, finally, the novel breaks through. But then women are kind of shut out Mm. as, of course, are people of color. Yeah. Right. So you have, you know, you have a largely male writing base, you know, white male, male, right. White male writing base. And then when you have when you start to see a lot of writers of color and a lot of women come onto the scene it's, it's frighteningly recent. It's you could look at like maybe the 70s as being like the first wave 60s or 70s of like a bunch. of female writers and especially in certain genres a bunch of people of color in certain genres and what you will see in the criticism and in the literary community is you will see a bunch of rhetoric that says that it's specialized fiction that it is special interest Mm. fiction that women don't write with the same scope as men
1: and I never understood when I heard that I have heard that before what does that mean for you when you hear that?
2: I think what that means is that when you have like a primarily <laughs> I, I don't like to use this idea of, of white cis male as being like a boogeyman, but I've got to use it sometimes, sure. but when you have a, a predominantly like white cis male kind of power structure that like those voices are, are, are louder mm-hmm. than other voices in the, in the conversation. I've actually thought about this a lot because when I was a child. I mostly read stories that had, and you hear this from all readers, right? It, you mostly read stories if you're a person of color that are from the perspective of white people when you're a child, if you're a reader, which is not true anymore, but it w- would be true if you were like 30, mm-hmm. you know? If you were a woman, you would mostly read stories where the protagonist is a male. So you don't really read as many stories that the person that is the hero is, is you, in your mind, but they still are you. So you learn to relate, you learn to engage, and I think that it allows you to have a perspective that includes white men, white cis mm-hmm. men, in we you know, in understanding the way they think and understanding who they are. But I don't think they had to do that because so many narratives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. were out there already that they could legitimately never read a female voice or never read a voice of a person of color, and I think that what that does is it makes them think, if, if the perspective character is a woman, it's a narrower story,
1: mm.
2: because those aren't my issues.
1: Right. Right.
2: Right. If this, if the perspective character is a person of color, it's a narrower story because those aren't my issues. Never, it never occurred to them mm. that the perspective of, of of a white cis male is is narrower because those aren't our issues.
1: Right, right. Right? Right, right. amen, right.
2: But it, it doesn't make it not worth telling. It doesn't make it unexciting. It's just that every story is from a certain perspective. And I think when they say that the stories lack scope, what they really mean is that. Yeah. And it's embarrassing to say that out loud. And so they say it lacks scope.
1: Wow, I, I've never heard it put so beautifully articulated in that way and I feel like that also translates into what I saw last night with the State of the Union you know when the person in the White House is giving that speech and seeing all of these white males stand up and every other person of color sitting down not clapping Mm -hmm. and to see exactly what you said earlier how divisive our country is because one perspective is trying to be the perspective and devalue what makes this country so great, the myriad of perspectives and cultures and point of views. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we have shared and talked a lot about is travel. How important has travel been in your life as an artist?
2: I can't really separate any part of my life from mm-hmm. travel in that, like, I did leave home quite early and immediately was, you know, like, I think I think for the first several years, I would move. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm traveling. I would say I'm moving, but I would move every two or three months Mm -hmm. to a different state
1: in the US in
2: the US. Yeah. And then I think it must have I must have been 18 because, you know, it's easier to get a passport when you're legal. (laughs) 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 But I took my first my first trip out of the country to Guatemala. And that that first trip was I think only four months, but...
1: What was that like being in Guatemala?
2: I love Guatemala. It's one of my favorite, favorite places. And why did
1: you choose Guatemala, if you don't mind me asking? Because the world's such a big tapestry. Quite,
2: quite honestly, it was like... It, it was a country that seemed like it would be interesting and had cheap ticket prices. Got it. <laughs> like, I, I got a ticket for $200, wow. and so that's why.
0: You're here,
2: <laughs> but you know. I mean, I probably like. I have spent anordinate <clears throat> an amount of time in Central America because it's also a cheap place to to be in. So you like you can get there for cheap and you can stay there for cheap. It's like, at some point, I said, you know, well, I don't. I I was working at a employment agency or something as an office manager, and so I lost that job just circumstantially. And I had been saving money and I thought, well, I could stay here and spend it on rent or I could get rid of my apartment and get a ticket and just see how far this like $1,200 or whatever will take me. And I couldn't spend it. I was like, I was in Central America for a year and a half. I still had $1,200 because I was working on trade. People would offer to like, let me stay places for free and watch it for a couple hours a day. Like in Belize, I played guitar and sang in the evenings for like resort guests and another place I did massage and so on. So I just started traveling and I never stopped. And I traveled at the end of the day, there was like, I think like a seven year, nine year period before I came to New Orleans that I never really had like a home base in my life, except for there was a period when my mom was ill that Mm -hmm. I that I lived in Oregon so I could be near her. But other than that, I've always been
1: traveling. Yeah, there's so many artists, and I've said this before, we've had so many different artists on the show who have said that travel and traveling is the best way to grow in your artistry because you see outside of America many of the limitations. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, so this is what I want to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I don't know if it's solely the purview of travel. I think that there can be other ways that you do this. But what I do believe is that we grow as human beings when we are deeply uncomfortable. And usually in most people's lives, there's only one or two periods where they are made deeply uncomfortable because what makes us fundamentally uncomfortable is when we don't know the rules and we don't know we're right.
1: Oh my, you have to say that again. You have to say that again. Please, one more time.
2: What makes us fundamentally uncomfortable is that is when we don't know the rules and we don't know we're right.
1: We don't know the rules and we don't know we're right. That is, wow. That's going to strike at the court of many, many people in the movement. But please continue.
2: So for most of us, that place is college. Mm -hmm. We learned the rules of high school. We worked really hard because we're not born knowing the rules. But man, we try to learn them quick. right? We're collecting. We're collectors. And by the time we hit prime middle school, we think we know what they are. But there are a lot... Rougher around the edges, uh, middle schoolers tend to be harsher with each other because they are enforcing the Mm rules so heavily. And then, you know, and, and so you have, whatever your set, whatever your place, whatever your, your group is, you follow those rules, you follow them to the letter and you know what they are and feel good about it. Most people, unless they can't follow them. And then you feel awful and you're an outsider. Right. Mm -hmm. But you think, you know what they are still, you just don't follow them.
0: Yeah.
2: And then you go to college and all the rules change. It's a different culture. So you have to relearn. And I think that's why people are just spending so much time in college talking about ideas, right? Talking about theories of life, because they have to re-figure it out all of a sudden. They realize like their parents' rules are not what necessarily their rules, you know, and so on. And maybe you do it once more, like when you go into your, your career, then you learn that culture. But other than that, for most people, like, it, the life is spent avoiding these places of deep discomfort. Hmm. So this is the value that I see in travel, is that when I go to a new country, the, there or even like a new s- state or neighborhood, if I am not trying to enforce my rules, if I am just acknowledging that there are different sets of things that people expect and that people think are normal and that people believe and all of that stuff, then it's like this constant growing and constant learning and constant realizing, like there is nothing you can take for granted. There is nothing that is just true, hmm. regardless of context. And yeah, that's what I love about it, because I, I feel like whereas maybe I understand why people would not want to keep putting themselves in that situation, that situation is deeply disturbing. You know? <laughs> right, right but I intentionally make myself feel uncomfortable and have kind of, I kind of made a promise to myself that I would always intentionally make myself feel uncomfortable. Anything that scares me or makes me feel uncomfortable and the reason that it does is because I don't understand what it is, I will do.
1: And that's where you grow.
2: And that's where I grow.
1: Where in the world have you longed to go to that you have not visited yet?
2: Well, I once went to, to Kenya for a little while and I loved it. And, you know, and I've been to like a little bit of Northern Africa, to Morocco and Egypt, but I would love to travel more extensively in Africa. Mm. I'd love to spend like a year or two there. It's such a huge continent, you know. So much to cover. There's so much to cover. And I'm a slow traveler, you know, like there are people who could, who can. I I think I probably will never go to all the countries there, because there are people who do who are like oh, well, two days in this place two days in that place i usually try to spend three months because that's three months is like when you're being forced to really learn like if you're just spending a couple days everywhere you're not learning that culture right yeah. you're not learning those rules or like what is expected of you yeah you're a tourist
1: yeah you're viewing
2: and i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that and i'm not even saying oh you can get the whole picture if you just stay for three months. You know? <laughs> but what I am saying is that when you see people stay in one, you know, stay in one country, you can travel around, but stay in one country for say three or four months, man, I've seen people crying like mm. every night and I mean it. They'll have, they'll like, I, there will be like some, you know, like they're, they're on their gap year. They're a sorority person, you know, or a fraternity person and they think they know it all and then they, go to spain or they go you know it's not even a challenging place right and they spend three or four months and they'll just cry every night like the world isn't what i thought it was Right,
0: right right so but
2: yeah i would love to go to i would love to see more of africa i would love to see more of i guess i would i think i would love to go to new zealand I've never been as drawn to Australia for some reason. I think I'll probably at some point end up going to India, but it had, like for I, I was like no for a really long time, and now I'm like, I think maybe yes.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah. What advice do you give to the artists right now who is at that crossroads where their families or friends are support, saying go to college and that's the path, You know, you had such a non-traditional path, and you've turned out very well as a human being, as an artist. What advice do you give that person who wants to choose your path?
2: Okay. First, you have to be an autodidact. If you're not going to college, you have to teach yourself. I meet people who who say they want to write or say they want to do art, but they don't go to museums. They don't read. Hmm. They don't, you know, it's like... I am low level fascinated with everything and every person that I meet is my teacher.
0: Yeah.
2: And I will I will t- treat them as such. If you are an expert in cheese, like I am going to try to get a lecture on cheese out of you, like right. Cuz I'm interested. So, yeah, first like make sure that that's the kind of person you are because if you because all of us want to learn, but not all of us learn in the same conditions. Yeah. So there's that. Also, just because you decided that you don't want to do the traditional path doesn't mean that you can't go to college. There's a lot of different ways to go to university that are not the way that your parents think about it. So I've been to university in many different contexts. Mm -hmm. You can audit classes for free if you don't have the money and still learn the thing and still get the book lists with just one of the best parts of college, especially in a larger class. They, you know, like I hitchhiked around the country and would just, walk onto a college campus sometimes and ask if I could stay in someone's dorm and they would say sure because they're in college they don't care and then I would stay there for a month and I would go to all their classes with them right Wow! I also just enrolled right it turns out you can just enroll in university you don't have to get in Hmm. so you can just enroll for for 12 or fewer credits I think and not go through all the rigmarole and getting accepted mm. and then you can just learn what you want to learn there's a lot less pressure if you're not interested in a degree if you did want to get a degree if you're a student in good standing after a couple of years they'll just let you in anyway hmm. you're already getting a's and b's that's all they care about
1: wow that's so interesting
2: so there's a lot of different ways
1: and a really non-traditional path mm-hmm. Walt whitman says that we are all multitudes and I do believe that. And you wear many hats in your life and your journey. I want to talk a little bit about the role of music okay. in your life sure. and how it came into your life and where it is today. You have a beautiful voice, beautiful instrument. I had the pleasure of hearing you sing a few days ago and it was really lovely. How did music come into your life and what is the role of music today in your journey?
2: I think actually music is one of the most powerful forms of storytelling mm-hmm. and I think that. I think that that a belief has been shared by many, many cultures. It was one of the earliest forms of, of newspapers, for example. Hmm. A bard would just travel around with the latest news and put it to song. And that's how people remember the news and, and learn the news. So there's that. When I, I mean, I grew up in a musical family. My aunt was a jazz singer in the 50s. She made $20 an hour, which was really good money in the yeah. 50s. And she met a lot of great, of great jazz musicians. She met Elvis Gerald. She met Louis Armstrong, and was starstruck by them. <laughs> I think you know. Even it's like even then, everybody knew that these were the gods of, of yeah. jazz. But my grandfather was in the barbershop quartet and sang with the big bands.
1: So it was in your blood.
2: Yeah. So I was I was raised with music for mm-hmm. sure, and. You know my dad wasn't a singer but he would just sing to us mm-hmm. and play us songs and like drum out beats on our bodies and so on and i think he did a me a real favor with music because at one point i was i had a pretty good voice uh, you kid. do <laughs> and he and i said don't you think i have a great voice dad and i actually would say this to any artist he, would, he said i said don't you think i have a great voice dad and he said no your voice is pleasant you can carry a tune, but if you really wanted to have a good voice, you'd have to practice wow. and you'd have to learn more. And I think this is a hard th- thing for people to hear, but I really appreciate that being told that but when, when I was quite young, because in some sense it's true. Like you don't have to follow the rules. You really don't, but you do have to practice and you do have to learn.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. And so how did you find your voice?
2: How oh, did I find my voice as a musician? Yeah, I was always really lyrically based, so the lyrics were were the most important thing, and then I like it was like the music always served that. Mm-hmm. So I would do really weird stuff with it that a lot of people were like, "You don't do that in music. That doesn't make any sense." And I'm like, "But I have to have a pause there because it's because the word was slow." Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I'm like, I'm not married to any, any style, actually. So I, you know, I probably be called Indie Folk, what I do. And that probably is a function of listening to a lot of jazz and folk growing up, you know? Yeah. But I, you know, I, there was one jazz song that I wrote. There was one blues song that I wrote there, you know, like there was some more rock based songs that I wrote. Because sounds are interesting mm. Mm. and, and they create different feelings. And what is so powerful about the medium of music and storytelling is that for some reason we viscerally respond to these tones. Mm. And so when you when you find a way to put these words to the right tones, it just travels straight to your heart instead of going into your head first. Mm. So if you want to tell a story where you want to convince someone academically, write a book first, right? If you just want to be like one shot to the heart, this is what it is. Poetry or music or write, a, music. Song, write, or a, write song. a song, yeah.
1: Write a song. And what is your song right now? What's the song you're singing in your heart these days? Is it a song of inspiration? Is it a song of hope? What is the song that you're singing in your heart these days?
2: You mean the quality of it? Yeah. Uh, well, it, I mean, I it's very complex. I'll say that okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very complex and layered song There is it is not, uh, it's not solely one thing but I think that whatever it is it has to do with an attempt to use anything that I have experienced in the world good or bad and learn a lesson from it mm. and it has to do with figuring out how to contribute that back
1: the world. World. I mean, I would be remiss. I want to be of use. Yes, I, I've shared this before. That when I was growing up, my grandmother, the one thing she taught me from when I was a little boy that I do every day, is I pray in the morning, I pray at night, and I. She always says, "Just ask the ancestors to use you, mm-hmm. use all of you up that yeah, day." That's right. And I feel that with you every day. It's been such a joy to to have that old feeling again. Again, being multitudes, one of the gifts that you've been very blessed with is that you're quite an amazing chef. Thank you. And I wanted to know, where did that come from? Because they say soul food is cooking from the soul and the heart, and everything that you put out in your hospitality is from the soul. So who taught you how to cook? And are you self-taught, or how did that come about?
2: So I actually consider food to be another language. It's, a, it's an art as well but it, there is a language that has you know like like water for chocolate is, is yeah. the best representation of that in literature I think right um, Although there are other books that have that same messaging and do a beautiful job of it too but I, I think maybe there's one person that in the, in a generation or something that maybe more it would be great if it was more that understands that language intuitively it's not something that that can be forced but mm-hmm. it's it's something that like some people get it some people don't mm-hmm. And I just happened to. I remember when I first, when I first realized food has power. Mm. I was very young. There, my sister and parents were in a fight. Oh. And my grandmother was visiting. And she didn't say anything. They're screaming in the living room. She didn't say anything. She just went into the kitchen, made some strawberry shortcake. And came out and said it's time for dessert <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you're seeing this as a kid yeah
2: and so and we all had to sit down at the table and eat that dessert or be an insult to grandma and by the time the dessert is oh you cannot fight after having grandma's strawberry shortcake grandma's strawberry shortcake and i thought i this is a, this is important right this mm. is this is powerful and then when i when i did leave home because I, I hadn't learned to cook at that point but i did i had the flavors in the in the care and the love and i can i say can i swear on this oh yeah, yeah okay no. so i i this was a really a thing that my 14 year old me said to myself i said there are going to be two things that i'm going to probably be doing all my life so i should probably get good at them I'm gonna be eating and having sex, so so I should get good at at fucking and cooking. Right? Like,
1: <laughs> yes, for the adults in the room.
2: And you don't have to put that on
1: <laughs> No, it's good. It's good. It's good because um, you know it, it's all about passion.
2: Yeah. So, it, but it was it was just like, I'm so I did. I because I'm an autodidact. Like I, from that realization that food is complex and interesting, a language, you know, a a powerful force in the world. It influences culture. It defines culture. Mm. You know, I mean, just knowing food is important, has been given me entree into so many people's homes, right? Because man, people are not nice about it these days. So like when you meet the old Catalan grandma, you know, and she gives you the thing that you think, oh, I don't eat meat, or I don't do that. If you eat it, she will love you forever. And she will call you her nina.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: (laughs) but also it's also I've noticed with you it's the table it's the preparation where did all that ritual come from was it from your childhood was it from your journeys like the details in the way you present food and present your home and the library and the residency It seems like everything was very well thought out
2: well it's kind of like I actually am terrible at detail, in general, in my life, but when it comes to serving others, I'm pretty good at it. There are a lot of people that I, I, I know this because there are a lot of people I know that don't, that are like, why do you do all this? You can just like throw together some sardines or whatever. <laughs> and But I think, I think that what I realized again, because I, because I consider everything that I experienced to be like something that I'm learning, I was, I've never had much in the way of financial stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I, like I said before, I've been very lucky. So like there have been people that I've met who kind of just were like, I'm going to take you to do this fancy thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, like I, I'm sleeping in a tent, you know what I mean? I need I a freaking Scottish Laird. Right. And get treated to the castle treatments. Wow. So I've had these experiences. And one thing that I really took away from them is like, the big thing is amazing, but it's all these little things it's all these details that make it so like it's like you don't know what it is but it feels different yeah right yeah. and I feel that way about uh, about food I feel that way about music it's like you when you have a bad performance on stage people in the audience are not like that was a bad performance usually if it's not terrible if you just had a cold or something right. But there's some energy that they will not have gotten. there There is something that will be missing because the, because you, the details of your voice will be like scratchy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, if you look at everything as an art, if you look at service as an art,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you look at trying to make people feel loved as an art, which I do, I think it's the fun it's the underlying belief that informs any art that I do is that all of this is love, Mm. then the details matter, not because somebody's going to notice that you did that or even know. Although somebody might, if they're paying attention, they might not, but it will feel different.
0: Mm.
2: The details will be crisp. They will feel somehow loved, but they don't know why.
1: Mm. As we start to kind of wrap up, First things first, how does someone find out about the residency and how does someone apply for the residency? What's the process?
2: Okay, so in terms of how people find out, I honestly have no idea. Like I it's it's not my it's that's that's not my end. Okay. I don't really do technology, which is odd because I do a lot of technology adjacent stuff.
1: But they can visit New Orleans Writers Residency and research but stuff. But there
2: is yeah, there's a website that is neworleanswritersresidency.org. Mhm. And most of, like, the, the advertising happens from Sean Drost, who's the other, mm-hmm. you know, founding member. And he does, yeah, in terms of, like, making it known into the world outside of the, that website. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what all he does, but I know the <laughs> website exists. And when you go to the website, there's there's information on the residency there. And there, is, there, are, I, there are some blog posts, I think, and there's a application page. Mm-hmm. So usually applications open up about, I want to say five or six months before the, the residency. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a three month window to apply. Um, and the residency is
1: twice a year or once a year?
2: It's once a year. Mm-hmm. Although we're considering some expansions that are more like four day retreats.
1: Great. What do you look for in a writer? Is there a specific type or is it really open to the words and how it makes the selection committee or you feel? You know, writers are always trying to look for, how Mm -hmm. do I... Like, what's the end? What's the end? What's the special sauce?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I can give you some basic advice, which is if you can apply early. And Mm -hmm. I will, will say that for anything that you're doing, because... People get readers fatigue because there are fewer submissions earlier on, so it's easier to stand out when there's like just a few a day. Yeah. Than if there's like a twenty book. a day. Yeah. Right. But in general, you know, I'm I think I'm looking for well-crafted writing, whatever that means. It can it's you know because it can look different in different people people's hands, but but you can tell if someone's done the work, and you can tell if they know their craft. Oddly, and then that you have something to say. If if I if something is beautifully written, but I don't know what it's about, it's a hard sell, right? Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you have to have sent the entire book, you know, mm-hmm. or the entire play. Or the entire play. <laughs> Usually, you can't do that. But if if you have, you know, like pick a section that has some kind of arc, some kind of like. Oh, I feel like this means something, right? Mm-hmm. And because because I do look for that, and that is what engages us, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And then
2: you can also like if it's a long thing and it's gonna mean something, and you're picking the best that part you you can, but you feel like it needs context, you can do a paragraph that just contextualizes what it is that you are wanting to do,
1: and go from there,
2: and go from there.
1: Yeah. The question we ask every guest as we close out: What do you know for sure?
2: I think you already asked me this, and I don't even remember how I answered. I don't really know anything for sure.
0: No.
2: But in, inside my own skin, I know that if I feel like I don't have anything to offer, that that means that I am very damaged in that moment. If I am being self-absorbed, then I am very, I've been. I've been hurt in that moment. And my job is to get as healthy as I can as quickly as I can so that I can begin the process of being of use again Mm. and of loving people again. Because I think that that's what I'm here for. I don't know how to do anything, really. And I don't know what anything means. But I have my theories. I'm very opinionated. But I think my job is to try to love people well.
1: And I just want to say that you're doing it very well. I have loved my time here with you, both today in this interview and these weeks. You are a friend for life. I respect you.
2: And you know you're always, I you're know. part of you're part of the family now.
1: And I admire you and I have a deep love for you. And I just want to say to all the artists who are out there who might not feel that you can find a home in New York or around the country, that what this residency, the New Orleans Writers' Residency has given me, is that gift. It is the gift of time to sit a while and think. And there is no other greater gift that an artist can give another. So thank you for listening, and remember to always be kind
0: to each other. One love. The mission of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, is to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights of all persons and to eliminate race-based discrimination. The Equity in the Arts and Culture Committee seeks advocacy for artists in the Borough of Brooklyn, builds bridges between funders, artists, and arts organizations within the Borough of Brooklyn, promotes and presents events that celebrate diversity, inclusion, and the core mission values of the NAACP, celebrates artist-driven, radically inclusive, and fundamentally democratic art of, by, and for all people, especially those in the borough of Brooklyn, creates educational opportunities that support arts learning, affirms and celebrates diverse cultural heritage, and extends its work to promote equal access to the arts in every community. If you would like to know more about the Brooklyn NAACP and how you can become a member of the community, visit our website at brooklynnaacp.org. That's brooklynnaacp.org.